Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a whole bunch of us content creators let you know what we've been playing recently. And we have a big show today. And on this episode are... The Meeple Dungeon. The Rat Hole. All games new and old. Board on the Air. Mr. Rao Gaming. Meeple and the Moose. Board Game Hot Takes. The Tabletop Bellhop. Dice and Dragons. The Omni Gamers Club and Cardboard Conjecture. And please take some time to check out the show notes to the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. And as I always say, enjoy! Hello everybody, it's Rob and Anna-Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello! And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesday's podcast. And this week we have a couple games we want to talk about. What's the first game, Anna-Marie? The first game we're going to talk about is Role Player, designed by Keith Mateka, art by John Ariosa, and published by Thunderworks Games. Mm-hmm. Um, role Player. Yeah, Role Player is a game that we've had on our shelf and played. I played a couple times before. You hadn't played it till we just yeah. uh, played now. Um, and yeah, this is a game that we've been wanting to play for a while um, together. And yeah, so we played it over the last week or so and this one if anyone doesn't know what role player is about it's literally a game about creating a character yeah like a DD style character like putting together a character um giving their their type so like dwarf or elf and then a like uh i don't know like a class so like for instance the character i was making was a dwarf uh which is your like main player board is your like you're like base level character. I was a dwarf. Yeah. You were an elf. And then you grab a uh, like a class yep. for that character, which I had barbarian. Then you also grab a card that has their backstory. Right. And mine was like street urchin. Okay. <laughs> and you also grab what's an called alignment card. What was it? Alignment? Yeah, they have a, yeah. an alignment card, and that tells like this, like a truth it's seeker, like a trait. Or, or it's a trait. Yeah, yeah. Where <laughs> mine was lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a lunatic dwarf, barbarian street urchin. Yeah. Was the character that I was trying to create, and yours was I don't remember what yours was. Yeah, I was. I an, just have it right in front of me. I was an elf thief royal. A royal with, elf thief. Yeah. Something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But what you're trying to do in this game is, yeah, you're literally trying to just create a character. Um, and so that's how this whole game was inspired, was inspired by the the whole fun that that people enjoy of creating characters for like video uh, role games, player games. And like, yeah, yeah, video all games sorts like Skyrim or, or D&D characters in, in tabletop, things like that. And what you're doing in this game is you're using dice to to like create their stats. I guess. Yeah, so, you, you have you have like a for each. I think there's six different stats. Yeah, seven? there's strength, dexterity, um, 
wisdom, charisma, and two others. Doesn't really matter. There's six <laughs> six stats. And what you're doing is so you create your board and you add all these cards to it to tell you what kind of guy or girl you're making here and you're going to be using dice and you're going to be pulling dice out of a bag and you're going to take those die and you're going to put them on to uh, the initiative cards so you're going to have three initiative cards one more than you have players so for a two-player game we have three initiative cards and we're going to roll so i can pull three dice out of the bag and roll them and then i have to place them in order on the initiative cards from lowest to highest yes on cards one, two, and three. So if I had a two, a five, and a six, I'd put the two on the number one, the five on the number two, and the six on the number three. Yes. And then... Impressive that I would have messed that up. <laughs> and then uh, you, whoever's turn it is, I guess it would be my turn because I put the dice out there, I would be able to select one of them. Yes. And then I'd be, I'd be taking one of those die, including the initiative card, yes. over to my side. You keep the die face the way it is. You yeah. take it, and then, yeah, you get that card that it's on. Yeah, and then you'll play it into one of your stat rows. And each row has, has slots for three die. Um, so, for instance, for strength, you could place it in your strength row. And when you do, you're going to activate um, an extra action kind of thing bonus action that happens every time yeah. you play something in the strength row or you could place it down in the initiative row or whatever yeah so like one of them might let you um flip one die completely opposite um yeah you know so like instead of a one you could flip it to a six one of them might let you flip ticket up or down one pip uh, one yeah. of them might let you or, swap a die, um, yeah. two die, in, you know, in different places or, or things like that. So they can, mm-hmm. um, but you have a finite amount of times you can do that because as you fill up your your dice slots beside each kind of trait. Um, you run out of those you actions. You run out of those actions. Because so. you can only put three die in each trait. And once that, that line of trait is, is full, you can no longer do those bonus actions. Yeah. And the whole reason you're wanting... To put these die into certain places is because of the like class card you took, the backstory card you took, and the trait card you took. Yeah. Because they are where your points are going to come from. Yes, your class card, it'll tell you each um, each row will have, like say for your strength, it'll say 14 to 15. Mm-hmm. So that means your three die, if they add up to 14 or 15, uh, you're going to get whatever victory points there are in... Um, in that row. Yes. And so, and some of them might say, you know, 17 plus, some of them might say 13 and you have to get exactly 13. So you have to exactly. mani- make sure that you're taking die uh, dice that will add up to 13 mm-hmm. because and those like, will give you b- your points. In front of me here, my barbarian card says that in the dexterity row, if I have 17 exactly um, equaled by between my three die, I will get three victory points at the end of the game. Yeah. If I have less than that or more than that, I get nothing. Yeah. So I'm really trying to make sure that my dexterity, the die that I place in my dexterity, three slots, equal exactly 17. Yeah. And and along with that, on the backstory card, you're going to have, there will be different colored die in different slots. So mm-hmm. maybe in like the first slot of your strength row, you want to have a blue a blue die mm-hmm. and then in the third slot of your dexterity row you want to have a black die right and so on and so forth down down there and if you get all six of those correctly or if you get you'll have different levels like if you get one three or six of them you'll get you know however many victory points kind of things yeah so basically um, if you get two to three of them correct you'll get a point yeah if you get four or five of them correct you're gonna get three points 
Uh, well, that's with my particular street urchin backstory. Yeah. And if I get all six of them correct, I'm going to get six yes. points. And then there's also the little um, uh, trait card, which is mine was called the lunatic, where it's got um, you have a it's just a small card. And on it, in the middle of it starts a cube. And that cube is going to get manipulated around depending on where you put die onto your main board. Right. And it's going to move this little cube around left, right, up, down, left, right. And you're trying to let it end up on one of, it's a nine or a three by three grid. Yeah. And you're trying to, on that grid, there's going to be negative points, positive points, and no points. Yes. And you're trying to make that cube end up staying on, on the highest positive you know, the points highest you can possible point or it's certainly not on negative points and that's one of those th- those things that can also get manipulated by one of the die which uh, is the die uh, placement yeah in the wisdom, the wisdom slot you can manipulate that um, to move it one square that thing around yeah. yeah to wherever you'd like it to go yeah and that's kind of what you're doing is you're just trying to add all these die in and uh and uh, create your character and have fun with it and just see what happens. And it's it's pretty quick and it's a, it's a real blast. Yeah. We really enjoyed it. And we got to chat with uh, Keith. Yeah. Um, in one of uh, Dyson Dragon's uh, Kickstarter Excess of Value videos we did with Jason and Mr. Rao. What an awesome guy. He was great. Keith yeah. Mateka, like super nice guy. Yeah, which, yeah. yeah. It's great to know that he's a, an awesome person behind this game because it's a great yeah. game. But yeah, I think that's enough about um, role player. Role player. Uh, we have one more thing to mention that we've also been playing, trekking through history. Yes, trekking through history from uh, Underdog Games, and this one is a game that we've played a couple games of, and we're not going to spoil much here because we're going to be doing a full blown review on our very next episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast, which will be coming out in the next couple days or so. So stay tuned for that. And yeah, I think that's it for this week. So we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. What's up, Internet? My name's Paparazzo Dave Chapman. I'm the lead reviewer for the Rathole.ca, a co-host on The Legend of the Traveling TARDIS, and I'm back on What You've Been Playing Wednesday. As a reviewer, inevitably someone's going to ask you what your favorite game or style of game is. Depending on what I've just played when you ask me, I'll probably hum and hob it, but will ultimately tell you that abstract strategy games are my jam. Rue may just have taken up the top spot as my favorite abstract strategy game. It's also been one of the harder games to wrap my brain around, but not in a bad way. Binary Coco is a small publisher from a small city in Idaho who makes as much of their games as locally as possible, which is a beautiful thing to see. In the case of Rue, the player pieces are fairly standard glass beads that are laser etched with each player's unique logo, and the board is printed on a super slim neoprene mat. One of the nice things about that is if you want to play outside or when you're camping or at a picnic, it's not going to blow away and it's not going to get wrecked. Normal play for Rue is two, three, or four players, elimination style. Although the rules are being redesigned to include two versus two play, uh, mostly that's just going to change the amount of table talk and the inevitable winner. Uh, It's still an elimination format. To set up, each player places four pebbles of their color in their quadrant of the board. On their turn, the player will jump one or more pieces. 
ending in an open square. As long as you land in that open square, you can jump any piece or any number of pieces in a straight line as many times as you want with only a few restrictions. You can never jump into the same space more than one time in a move, and you can only land in one of the black center spaces if you've already jumped over one of the other player's pieces during that move. How a move works is that the player plots out their jumps with black pebbles called tracers. Your move is not complete until you actually move your piece, so it's an easy way to make sure you're doing what you're planning to do in your head. After your move, and this is where things get really interesting, the black tracer pebbles are replaced by white neutral pebbles. These neutral pebbles can't be moved, but can be jumped as normal. This changes the layout of the board drastically with each and every turn. An interesting addition to that mechanic is that for every five tracers placed in a single turn, that player gets a pebble of their own color instead of the neutrals. That piece can be placed in any open space on the board. You can have up to a maximum of eight pebbles of your own color. If you get to the point where you have eight pebbles and haven't already won, every five tracers is instead traded for nothing. Stop being greedy. So in either case, if you made six jumps, placing six tracers, five of them would automatically convert to a pebble or nothing, and you would still get one neutral bead to place as normal. Um, I was playing a team game when this rule bit my teammate in the tuchus. He made six jumps, got his pebble, and his one neutral. Except we really needed those first five neutral pebbles on the board, and it almost cost us the game. Remember when I said you can only jump into one of the central black spaces if you first jumped one of the other player's pieces? Well, that's also how you eliminate them from the game. Jump that player's piece and end on one of the central spaces. If you jump more than one player's pebbles in that move, yes, you eliminate them all. Yes, even your teammate if you're playing a team game. The game sounds simple. Mechanically, it is simple. But understanding how the game plays has a shockingly steep learning curve. After my first game and inevitable loss, a light bulb went on. After my second game and equally inevitable loss, more lights went on. It took a few more games still before I really started to see everything on the board. The nice thing is that the games are usually fairly short, but as with any abstract strategy game, analysis paralysis is a thing that can happen. Uh, the downside to it being an elimination format game is that if you're playing a multiplayer game and you get knocked out early, it can be a bit of a wait. But you probably still want to pay attention because you're still going to keep learning, which you probably need to do. One of the nice things about Binary Coco doing most of the production in-house is that they can do smaller print runs. And that means they can tweak and reprint the rules and push that out in their physical game faster than a bigger publisher. I can't wait to dig into a few more of their games, but until I get that chance, I'm going to go love me some Rue. Here at theRathole.ca, we put out primarily written content with occasional video reviews and interviews, as well as a weekly miniature painting series, Slinging Paint. You can find our YouTube and all of our social media at linktree, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash 
therathole.ca. Thank you for listening, and until next time, good gaming, and goodbye. Hi everybody, this is David Rodriguez from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel, here with another What You've Been Playing Wednesday segment. I just played my first game of Sakura Arms from Level 99 Games. Uh, I guess this game was first released in Japan. This game is a two-player game in which you and your opponent are each going to pick two of the goddesses in the box. Each has their own deck of cards, and you're going to take select cards from those and combine them into one deck. Now, these decks are very small. You're going to have seven normal cards and three ultimate cards and that'll be again a mix of the cards between those two characters so the goal of the game is to defeat the other side each player has a 10 life to start out with and so once you deplete that down to zero you've won this game takes about 15 to 20 minutes to play once you get the hang of it it does take a little bit to get the hang of because there's kind of a lot going on on the board which i'll get to here in just a second so at the start of your turn you are going to gain a vigor which is something that you can use to spend to do actions later if you have any uh, enchantment cards out, which uh, are some of the cards you could possibly have in your deck, you are going to remove Sakura tokens from both yours and your opponents. These sort of act as timers on those cards because they have an ongoing effect. And once those Sakura run, out, run out on the cards, then that ongoing effect ends. You could, if you want to, choose to reshuffle your deck. But if you do, you will take one damage. And then you're going to draw two cards. From there you go on to the main phase and this is where the real meat of the game is. In the main phase, most of the actions you do are going to cost you either Vigor, as I mentioned before, you have a card that goes from a zero to two Vigor, so you just sort of rotate it to the amount of Vigor you're supposed to have. If you want to do an action and you don't have enough Vigor, or if you just choose to do this, you can also discard cards out of your hand face down to pay for those actions. Those actions all apply to things going on in the board, and pretty much everything on the board is marked with these pink wooden uh, Sakura tokens. They look like pink flower petals, but they're thick and wooden. In the middle of the board is a distance track that has 10 spaces in it. And these are dual layered boards, by the way, so everything fits in nice and snug. So one of the things you could do is you could advance. So you'd move a Sakura from the distance track into your aura track, which acts sort of like a shield for you. And there's five spaces on the aura track. So you can't do that if it's already filled. Uh, and that basically will move you closer to your opponent as some of the attacks you do later are going to have a range. You can also retreat. So if you want to put distance between you and your opponent, you can take a Sakura from your aura and move it back onto the distance track, thereby putting more space between you. You could choose to focus, which will move some of the Sakura from your aura area into your flare area. Your flare area is where you're going to put Sakura when you take damage as well, and you can use the Sakura in your flare area to pay to play those ultimate cards, which are usually pretty powerful, so it's actually pretty important. You could choose to recover. In that case, you would move some Sakura from the shadow area, which is this big kind of communal area in the middle that the Sakura kind of end up in a lot, and you can move those down to your aura. 
Uh, very similar to the retreat is the breakaway action. If you only have two Sakura between you on the distance track, you can choose to break away, which will let you move a Sakura from the shadow area back to the distance track. Now, as useful as all that is to know, uh, people, what people really want to do is play the cards from their hands. Now, those don't cost things to play down, except for those ultimate cards, which again, play you have to pay Sakura from the flare area to uh, use, usually. But the other cards are going to be usually either an attack card, which is pretty obvious. You will attack your opponent and do uh, damage. So when a person attacks you, there will be two kinds of damage it will list on the card. The first one is going to be aura, and the other one is health. And you can choose as the person receiving the damage which you're going to take. But if you can't take the full amount of the aura damage, you have to take it from your life. So um, the aura acts are a little bit like a shield for you, but you have to have enough to absorb the attack. Or there'll be a utility card, which will do something else for your character to help them out in the matchup. There are also reaction cards, which you can play down or your opponent can play down when an attack is made against them, which can sometimes put more distance between you, which might take you out of range of the attack, or can just add some defense, which will absorb some of that damage from you. Some cards, both in the regular deck and in the ultimate cards, are full power cards, in which case those would be the only main action that you can do in your, that turn. If you play those down, you can't do anything else, but they're usually pretty powerful, so oftentimes worth it. Once you're done with all your main actions, you then will discard down to just two cards, and then it will pass to the next player. One thing worth noting is you only have seven cards in that main deck, and anytime you have to draw a card and you can't and you have to reshuffle, you take damage for every card you couldn't draw. So that really is what lends to this game not taking too long to play. You will eventually start hurting yourself uh, just because you've gotten through your deck, which is... Um, really quick to do with that low amount of cards. Now, if all that sounds super confusing, you're not alone. Uh, I watched the tutorial video they have, which I feel left out some information, and it was actually a little tough because they kept like rotating the screen around and the camera so you could see different aspects of the board, and I read the rules, but it didn't really click in my head until I sat down and actually played the game. And the board is really good about showing you uh, all kinds of different arrows for the different actions you can take, so uh, it lets you see exactly where you can move the Sakura to, depending on what you're doing. I think the art for this game is really great. It's an anime style, but they use like it, the the lines are really thick and not super smooth, which gives it a really unique look. And at first, I didn't honestly like it, but it's grown on me a lot because it really stands out great uh, against the rest of the artwork. Also, the main board is mostly black and white, so those pink Sakura tokens look really great on there. Overall, it's a really fun game. I'm enjoying it so far. I need to play more before I can give a final review, but so far, I see a lot of potential for a lot of fun. So if you'd like to see more from me, I am going to be doing an unboxing on this game and hopefully a review fairly soon. My channel again is All Games New and Old on YouTube. You can follow me at All Games New and Old on Twitter and All Games New and Old on TikTok. I hope to see you one of those places soon. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Board in the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon on Thursday nights. And this is What Have You Been Playing? Tonight, we are going to be talking about... Scoville by Ed Marriott. Yeah, this is a Tasty Minstrel Games, uh, May They Rest in Peace game. Uh, two to six player. Yeah, it's two to six. Yeah, two to six. It is two to six. Uh, it takes about... Six... 
hour. It says 60 to 90 minutes. But you can probably get it done in 45 to an hour. Yeah. It's always seemed to go really fast for us. Yeah. Uh, Even with a teach, you know, we were hour and a half, hour, hour and a half max. Yeah. Uh, That might just be because we don't overthink plays or something in this game, but... It, it always seems to be very, very quick. And it, it is a game that when I play, I always want it to last a little longer than it does. Yeah. it. If you're on top of it, the game can go really quick. If everyone's taking their time, though, it could go out a little longer. Yeah. Uh, in the game, you are try- you're collecting peppers to fulfill recipes and contracts for the farmer's market. Or sell peppers. <laughs> uh, you're gonna each round is broken up into three different four different phases uh five five technically uh first one is you're bidding on turn order uh you decide when you bid you have the choice of where you want to go because you're going from first to last last to first first to last every round yeah uh First thing you're going to do is take one of the peppers out of the market for free. Or w- one of the cards. Auction uh, cards. Auction cards. That's what they are. And it can be anywhere from one to three peppers on that auction card. Yep. Uh, second thing you're going to do is you're going to plant a pepper. Yeah. And you have to plant the pepper next to one other pep, at least one other pepper. Orthogonally. Yeah. And there's not real much difference unless you're putting out some of the higher quality peppers because the first few put out of those give you bonus points yep uh then after that you move your farmer yep starting in last this time so the last player gets to move their farmer first which you're going to be able to move up to three steps unless you use any special abilities yep which every step you move if it goes between two different peppers or two peppers you get a pepper back. Yeah, I think there's only... If it's two browns, you don't get anything, right? No, brown and something. Brown and any of the first six. Yeah. Uh, and then the final thing is you get to fulfill orders or contracts or sell peppers. And or. is the Yeah, and or. You can do all three of them once. Yeah. Uh, then finally you reset and get ready for the next round. Yep. Uh, uh Solid game. Uh, it's it's older. Uh, I think this one was 2014. So yeah. yeah, like this is eight years old, which in gaming years is about 40. <laughs> <laughs> to you. It just, it seems like anything past a couple years seems really old or that it's been around for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I, I've always had a fun time playing this game. The actions are super simple. But thinking, because even with bidding, you're like, okay, I can go first and put the first pepper out. But like what happened with you the last game, you put out this one powerful setup to get the best pepper in the game, and then I just came running in and stole it from you. Yeah, and blocked me out. And there is blocking in this game with your farmers. You you can't go through people, uh, so you can leave them on a space, and nobody else is going to have access to it that turn. You always have to move somewhere. But, yeah. you know, you can't hold it for more than one round, usually. Yeah. Uh, as you said, there's lots of good decisions in it, which is something I like in games, where, you know, you're really... There's tough decisions 
on both sides, right? Do I go first here? Do I go first here? Uh, do, do how much to... do I bid? Because money, every three money is a victory point at the end of the game. And you don't really get a lot of it throughout the game unless you're really on top of the delivery contracts. Yeah. Uh, art in it is very nice. It's by Joss Capel, I believe is how you pronounce it, who's done uh, Hall of the Mountain King, Pandemic. It's a very clean art. Yeah. Uh, you know, all the iconography is very clean. You understand exactly what it's saying, what it needs, what you're getting. You get this massive multiplication table for the peppers. Yeah, that's cool where it says, okay, this goes with this. to get, And if, you, if these two peppers are together, you get this pepper. Right, and it's a 10 by 10 grid, I believe, because I think there's 10 different peppers in the game. Yeah. And it's really, really neat, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you get a X amount of contracts. The game ends once you're done under the player limit of contracts, or you've gone through two sets of the deliveries. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a morning phase and an afternoon phase. And the morning phase ends when the farmer's market is less, or has less cards than, the than there are players. players. Uh, the afternoon ends when either the farmer's market or the recipes have less than a number of players. But uh, in the morning, if you somehow manage to not do any of the contracts and finish all the recipes, it still ends the game yeah. right there. So it can end quickly. I've never seen it end that way. No, because uh, you you just don't have the peppers to do that, and you to to do all the recipes early on. Uh, you really need to get into that afternoon phase to do that. Yeah, that's uh, where you get the the morning are a lot of the starting peppers, where you get a lot of the little ones, some of the middle ones. The afternoon are where you're getting those big peppers that give you the big bonuses. Yeah, it, it intensifies fairly good in the afternoon, uh, where. You know, it's that engine builder where you're just starting out in the first one, and then it sort of explodes and ramps up, and then the end, as I said, comes comes very quickly. Yeah. Okay, that is Scoville. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan. We don't play it that often, but you, I find it very good. Yeah, I always enjoy when we get to play it. It's one of the small ones in our library that sort of gets looked over at times, but it's always a fun time to play. Exactly. Uh, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. Talk to you next week. Hey folks, it's Ryan here from Mr. Al Gaming. Welcome to another week of What You've Been Playing Wednesday, where this week I'll be chatting about a couple of games that have been seeing a bunch of time on my table lately. And it just so happens that they are both deck-building games from Renegade Game Studio. The Transformers deck-building game designed by Matt Hyra and Dan Planchette so far is the closest thing that I have to a good Transformers board game. All the classic characters are there and their character cards all bring something unique to the game that they are in. The deck-building in this game is quite unique and is the highlight of the gameplay. Instead of having a quote-unquote market of cards to purchase from every round, Cards are laid face down in what they refer to as the matrix. Players need to explore the matrix by spending movement points, one of the resources that cards can provide, to move their standee and reveal the card that they are on. Once the card is revealed, now it is available to purchase or slash recruit if a player is on that card with power. 
another resource that cards can provide. Many of these cards are your standard make-your-own-deck-better-and-more-efficient type of cards with special abilities and more power-slash-movement. But some cards in the Matrix are Decepticons, ready to ambush the Autobots. These Decepticons need to be fought with the power and don't go into players' decks. Now, how does one win that game of Transformers the deck building game? Well, it depends on how you're playing the game. There is a competitive mode where players try to earn the most victory points. But to be honest, I don't even want to play this game competitively. It just doesn't make any sense for Autobots to be in competition with one another to see who fought the Decepticons better. Rather, the cooperative mode is where this game is really shining at the moment. Here, the players need to reveal and then battle through and defeat three boss Decepticons before the main deck of Matrix cards runs out, or if one particular player gains five damage. There is a lot to like about the Transformers deck building game. If you are familiar with the games such as Dominion, Clank, or even Star Realms, you will find similar mechanics at play here. However, there are elements that could be improved upon. For one, many Autobot abilities require a certain type of card to be played in order to trigger their effect. Due to the randomness of how the Matrix deck is constructed pre-game and then used to fill the Matrix, there is a possibility that these types of cards don't ever enter the game, or at least a very few of them. This doesn't feel very good as you really don't feel as if you are actually using your character to their fullest potential. On the other side though, I find it really cool to have to manage when you are in your vehicle mode versus when you are in your bot mode. Vehicle mode allows you to travel the matrix of cards faster and reveal cards, but have a negative one power when it comes to battling adversaries. Bot mode does, doesn't grant you any movement, but it does come with special abilities and these thing called energon abilities that can be triggered on your turn. Overall, I really, really enjoy the game that is here in the, co in the cooperative mode. The Darkness Rising standalone expansion, which is releasing now, will fix the issue I have with the competitive mode as it will allow players to play Decepticons versus Autobots if you own both sets. That's what I want out of this game. If you want to see some gameplay, I played a solo game a couple weeks ago on my channel. Go check it out. Now, last night on my channel, I played the G.I. Joe deck building game designed by T.C. Penny III. G.I. Joe provides a much different deck building game experience than Transformers, perhaps for the better. Here, players will find a traditional market of cards that players can recruit into their decks, most of them Joes, lots of characters from the G.I. Joe lore and world. In this game, though, players will be playing through a series of missions representing some of the cool moments in G.I. Joe history. One of the phases of a player's turn is to go on these missions. This is comprised of selecting a vehicle, a type of card that can be recruited, and sending Joes on a mission up to the capacity of that vehicle. The strategy, though, is to send Joes that have a skill set that will be successful for that particular mission. For example... A mission may say it needs five successes, and Recon is one of those skills that can be used. Now, every Joe by default has one wild skill that it can contribute to a mission, but some may have some specialties. For example, one could say, I have three Recon, which will provide three dice to help resolve the mission. Oh right, I forgot to mention, you use dice to resolve the missions. 
add up your total skill for the mission and you get to roll that many dice to try to get successes. It's harder than it looks though as each dice has a 50% chance of not rolling a success. If the total successes is equal to the higher is equal to or higher than the mission success value, well, you're successful and you get to resolve some sort of bonus. If you're unsuccessful though, however, there is always a penalty. Whether you were successful or not, though, the main story missions advance to the next mission. Players only win the game if they can successfully complete the final mission card. Now, like a good cooperative game, there are many ways in which the Joes can lose. There's a threat track that advances every round and through certain game effects. And when it goes to the very top, well, you lose. There are also Cobra Battalion cards that cover up the cards in the market row. And if all the cards are covered, you lose. There are lots of things getting in the way and making the game harder on the Joes. Side missions come out that may have to be dealt with. Or even Cobra Officers, the big bads of the series that alter the rules in some fashion. This is probably the most thematic deck building game I've ever played. Send Joes on missions to thwart Cobra and is so cool, and not to mention all the gear and utilities that you can use on the missions to ensure that you have the best chances at success. This is the game I wish Transformers deck building game was. I wasn't a huge G.I. Joe fan growing up, but this game is so good that I don't need to know all of the Joes or the hidden nuances from the lore. There is now a small expansion available, Shadow of the Serpent, that adds new missions to go on, new Joes, and a new base mechanic that I'm just really eager to try out at some point. Now, the elephant in the room in regards to both of these games, though, is that learning them straight from the rulebooks is a task and a half. They are very poorly organized, poorly phrased, and just not visually friendly. Text upon text upon text and in many cases, not easy to find solutions to some gameplay scenarios you might find yourself in. For your information, it is easily missed that if a Joe goes on a mission, they can still be reused, use their recruit values to purchase new cards, something I wasn't doing in my first games. If you have access to it, I highly recommend checking out some gameplay videos, like mine, in order to learn how to play these. And that's what I've been playing lately. Be sure to check out my full solo playthroughs of G.I. Joe and Transformer deck building games on my YouTube channel. Just search up Mr. Rao Gaming. I go live every Tuesday for playing games either solo or with friends. And this Thursday, tomorrow night, will be my first ever talking tabletop show. Join me as I talk all things board games and we'd love to see you in the chat. Also, if you'd like to follow my gaming adventures on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, just search up at Mr. Rao Gaming. Enjoy the wet rest of what you've been playing Wednesday, folks. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleOnTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk to you about the games I played this week for what you've been playing Wednesday. Now, I'm woefully ignorant of the time and history that PAX Premier covers, so I'm just going to read the description from the BGG page. In PAX Premier, players assume the role of 19th century Afghan leaders attempting to forge a new state after the collapse of the Durrani Empire. 
Western history is often called this period the Great Game because of the role played by the Europeans who attempted to use Central Asia as a theater for their own rivalries. In this game, those empires are viewed strictly from the perspective of the Afghans who sought to manipulate the interloping Ferengi, or foreigners, for their own purposes. Mechanically, Pax Pamir by Cole Worley is basically a tableau builder slash area influence game. Throughout the game, players will be buying cards and that will enable them to deploy and manipulate tokens belonging to the three factions of the game, the Afghan, the Russians, and the British. When certain actions are taken, players can swap their allegiance between factions. You know, at four points during the game, a dominance check will happen. Uh, during a dominance check, if one faction has four or more tokens than any other faction, the players who are loyal to that faction will score points based on their influence within that faction. If no faction has dominance on the board, however, then individually players will score points based on how many influence discs they've managed to shed off of their personal boards. On your turn in Pax Premier, you can take two actions. Buying cards from the ever-changing market and playing cards from your hand are both actions. You can also take actions on the cards that you've played to your tableau, and if the suit of the card in your tableau that you want to take the action from matches the favorite suit in the game, you can take those actions for free. Play, play will continue around the table until either someone is four points ahead than everyone else, or all four dominance check cards have been played. I can see the genius behind the systems of Pax Premier. But the game fails to elicit joy for me. Part of the reason of that is that I'm just generally not a fan of direct conflict games, but in Pax Premier it feels like you have to balance four different spinning plates with only two actions per turn. To do well, you'll need to hope that the correct situation will present itself and that you're able to strike with surgical pre precision. It's less about manufacturing the right situation yourself and more about pouncing on the opportunity when it shows up. I was able to earn 3 points in the first dominance check by luckily playing a card that dropped a disc onto a card in someone's tableau and then used a free action to slay that card, sending 2 discs back onto their board and then I could buy the dominance check early, leaving me in the lead. Two players had allied with the British faction early on and it wasn't long before myself and the fourth player had chosen to ally with Russia in a bid to keep the British from just having an overwhelming majority. A lot of the actions in the game are tied to the cards that are available to you. Maybe you want to do something that will affect one area of the board, but the card doesn't exist? Too bad, so sad. Should one player manage to hoard all the cash and the purple cards that would allow you to tax them into oblivion come out, you can just be left high and dry, which severely limits your ability to affect the card market. Pax Premier ends up feeling more tactical than strategic. You'll do way better if you're exploiting momentary advantages that are presented to you, like an 11th hour allegiance shift. But if you go into this game planning to only bring glory to the Russian motherland, you're going to have a bad time. The other game I played this week is Familiars and Foes by Christopher K. Lees and Jordan E. Permay. Now this is a review copy sent to me by the publisher as it's going to be coming up onto crowdfunding platforms soon. Familiars and Foes is a 1-5 player cooperative game where you play as an elemental fox familiar on a quest to save the good witches and wizards of Jorah Lee. A game of Familiars and Foes lasts for four waves and pits players against a variety of enemy monsters. To begin the game, all players choose an asymmetric familiar and take the corresponding spell cards. One card will be the basic spells that you can use from the start of the game, and the other will be the advanced spells that need to be unlocked by completing a variety of basic actions. The back of the rulebook has a chart that seeds the board with the number of foes based on the player count and the chosen difficulty level. Physical attacks are listed on the player sheet with varying thresholds for successes and failures for each character. One character might hurt themselves if you roll a 6 or under, but would do 4 whole damage if you, the die happened to exceed 16. 
Another character will have easier thresholds, but lower rewards. And each character has their own set of spells, although the basic spells are all pretty similar. On your turn, if you choose to play a spell, you simply select which one you'd like to cast, pay the required mana, and then roll the die, hoping to earn a success by exceeding the threshold, which again is different for every spell. Again, higher risks mean higher rewards. If you manage to land a hit using a basic attack, each other player at the table has the opportunity to pile on using the ballyhoo mechanic. They pay a single mana point and then flip a coin. Heads deal two damage, tails they'll take one damage. If the ballyhoo succeeds, the next player can pile on too. The ballyhoo continues until all players have managed to pile on or someone fails the coin flip. I was not prepared for how adorable Familiars and Foes was. This game exudes charm and character. I absolutely adore the art all over everything. The familiars are cute and I desperately want their plushies to adorn my shelves. The enemies are charming and clever and the little artist flourishes left me absolutely charmed. Even the familiars familiars, the frogs, are adorable. Now, gameplay is straightforward. Each player selects their action, which is either a physical attack or a spell, rolls the die, checks for successes, and then play continues to the next player. After all characters have taken a turn, the enemies will get a chance to attack and then play continues round after round and turn over turn until either all the waves of enemies have been survived or the familiars have fallen. Familiars and Foes has aspects that remind me of the roguelike games like Enter the Gungeon or Nuclear Throne. Each time you set the game up, you'll be in for a different combination of monsters and different artifacts that can drastically change how you will approach each wave. I really enjoy this variability and I'm looking forward to seeing more foes and more artifacts and more familiars hopefully in the form of stretch goals or future expansions. Familiars and Foes is a light co-op game that's great for playing with younger members of your family or introducing new players to the wonderful world of board games. It's aesthetically pleasing, which makes it even easier to draw players to your table. The randomness is high, but if you, if you can stomach dice controlling your fate, Familiars and Foes is a cute game worth checking out. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them over on my website, meeplethemoose.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Meeple and the Moose or on Twitter at Moose People. Have a happy Wednesday. Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes podcast, a podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. This week was an epic week in gaming for me because I got to attend our biannual board game hot takes convention. That's the three of us, me, my co-hosts, Adam and Chris, as well as our occasional co-host, Steve, who plays games with us every week, where we get together, rent an Airbnb in some destination and just play board games the entire weekend long. This weekend, it was in Long Beach, California, which is where Adam lives. Chris and I used to live. It's where we all met together. So we were excited to be back, rent a little Airbnb close to the beach and played tons of games. The game I'm gonna talk about right now is called Shamans. This was published in 2021. It was designed by Cedric Shubase and published by Studio H. Now, you can hear more about this game as well as all the games we played on the next podcast that releases, and that's gonna be this coming Monday. But for now, I'm gonna go a little bit deeper on Shamans. We had a really exciting moment that we referenced in the uh, episode this week, but I'll tell you a little bit about how it plays. Basically, Shamans is a trick-taking game. Trick-taking game is essentially a game where players go around the table playing a card. The first person kind of sets the suit of the card, and everyone else typically has to match that suit. You may be trying to beat the, to like get the highest in the suit to take the trick. So this is kind of like this, but it's got some clever, unique mechanisms in it. This is a trick-taking game. 
with a hidden traitor. What happens at the beginning of the game is everybody gets dealt one of these four cards in a four-player game, for example. Three of you will be shamans. These are the good guys. And one will be the shadow. That's the bad guy or the traitor. And you don't reveal these cards to anyone else at the table. Then you get dealt all the cards. Uh, everyone gets dealt all the cards around the table. So you're going to have a handful of cards of a few different suits. The suits match up to these colors that are on a little board that's in the middle of the player area. And on that board is a track. And that track is going to be slowly moving a token, usually towards the moon. The moon is printed on the board there. If the token ever gets to the end of the track, the shadow wins. If the if any one of the shamans gets killed, the shadow wins. But if the shadow gets killed, or if all of the cards are played before the track gets to the moon, then the shamans win, and it's joint victory. If the shamans win, you get two-point tokens. If the shadow wins, you get three-point tokens. And you're, you're playing to eight points, so this is going to be played over four or five hands. What's going to happen is the lead player, the starting player, is going to play a card um, of one of these suits. It's probably a card of one through six. And they're going to put it next to the board, next to one of these suits that are printed on it. On the board next to the suit is going to be a special ability that happens when that uh, ritual is triggered. And how does a ritual get triggered? It gets triggered when somebody finishes that suit or plays all the cards in there. So, uh, you, you know, the lead's going to lead with that suit. The next person's going to play. Now, they don't have to follow suit. But of course, if you're working together with the shamans, you want to follow suit because if you play off suit, then that little token moves towards the moon, which is bad for the shamans and good for the shadow. So every time somebody plays off suit, it raises a little suspicion. Are they, do they just not have a color in that suit or is it the shadow? The other thing that'll happen is that aside from the person who uh, kind of wins the trick or plays the highest card in that suit that turn, they're going to play next. They're going to lead the next trick. But the person who plays the lowest card in that trick gets to pick up one of these tokens. Um, there are a couple tokens that are face up on the board. Uh, they're going to do a couple different things. They're going to potentially give you a knife. Uh, they'll give you a half a point token. If you could collect two of them, they're worth a full point at the end of the game. So you can either take one of the, the, game, the, the little tokens that are face up, or you can take one off the top of this little stack of tokens. So there's a few other abilities in there. One of them will make you swap your, uh, your character with somebody else at the table. So you can swap from being the shadow to the shaman, etc. And um, the person who plays the lowest in the suit is going to take one of those tokens. So they'll have that availability. It'll usually give them some kind of bonus that they can use during the game. Now, when somebody finishes off a suit of cards, then the person who played the highest that turn is going to activate the ritual that's printed above that suit of cards. Several of them around the board are going to have a knife on it. So if somebody has picked up the knife and they're the highest to play in that suit, they're going to be able to kill one of the other players or stab one of the other players at the table. Again, if the shamans kill the shadow, then they win. They all get two points. If the shaman, if the shadow kills one of the shamans, then the shadow wins and he gets three points. Uh, so it's a lot of little clever mechanisms here. If you like trick taking, this adds a little bit of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, intrigue to it, a little bit of suspicion to the game. But there's a few little elements that play out here that make it interesting with our group. I tend to have Steve yelling at everyone around the table, pointing out who's, who he thinks the shadow is. Adam's uh, going along with him and, and talking about how he's not the shadow and convincing everyone he's not. Chris is just silent. And I'm clearly giving all my tells because I'm terrible at any kind of hidden trader game. No matter what I do, whether I talk, whether I'm quiet, everyone suspects me. So I'm really bad at that type of game. But somehow this game adds enough mechanically to kind of make the hidden trader mechanism 
not feel so social, meaning you don't have to take take on the social elements and blame people and stuff like that and not do well here. You can still, even if you're giving, away your, giving yourself away, you can still make some clever choices in the game that may allow you to win, that may allow you to... Um, to uh, you know, be clever and, and kind of succeed at this, uh, that, that still make it a lot of fun. So we've had a lot of fun playing this. This was my second time playing it. So the, the final round of this game today, this was where the special event happens, right? So we're playing, I'm sitting at like five points or six points. I, could, I have the chance of winning this game. Adam's at, at five points. The only way he could win is if, if he's a shadow, but everyone gets dealt their cards. Everyone looks at their cards, except Adam says, guys, I'm just not gonna look at my card. And Steve is just like, what? What do you mean you're not going to look at your card? And he just, he almost blows up. He's like, you, you got to look at your card. Don't be crazy. We need to know what you are. You can't play without looking at your card. And Adam's like, nope, I just, you know, I just want to kind of play this one and play it by my gut and see how I do. Completely threw us all off. We're, we all believe him. We're playing the game. We, we think that Adam doesn't know what he is. He's just making weird moves. He ends up winning. It turns out he's the, the shadow. He ends up stabbing somebody. He tricked us the whole time. We didn't see him look at his card, but he knew what he was. Hilarious moment. We all blew up. It was crazy. End up winning the game with it. Uh, super fun game. My group is super fun to play with. I was so happy to have this great weekend with them. So again, listen in next week to the Board Game Hot Takes podcast. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll get a full recap of the 14 or so games that we played over the weekend. Had a great time. Shamans was just one of the many. Otherwise, you can find us on Twitter at BG underscore Hot Takes. Until next week, take care, everybody. Hello, and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. Now, I've only got two games to talk about this week, starting with The Ghost Betwixt. I've mentioned this before, but just in case you don't remember, this is a four-player modern dungeon-crawling game set in the 90s in America's haunted heartland. It's kind of like Gloomhaven, but you're playing a family trying to save one of the kids from a haunted house. Now, this last play was Scenario 4, the first game after unlocking a bunch of new stuff at the end of Scenario 3, some of which we expected, but there were some surprises as well. Now, I've been told that after Scenario 3, things got quicker, and whoever said that is a liar. This game took us over five hours, and that's without any drinking going on. About two hours into this, we had a player completely eliminated from the game, and we had a TPK in the last room. Which means the next time I'm going to be talking about this game, it will also be Scenario 4. Now, I don't mind failing in a dungeon crawl, and I don't even mind when a player gets knocked out, as long as the game is fairly short. We replayed a number of scenarios in Gloomhaven, as well as in other games like Descent, but having to restart after over five hours and having a player with nothing to do but play Dragon Quest on their phone for three hours is a bit much. I'm sorry to say this last session has changed my opinion on the ghost betwixt towards the negative. Once a game gets into the five plus hour range, it becomes an event game, something I have to plan a whole night around rather than it just being one of many games we play on a regular game night. While we are enjoying the mechanics, the evolving story, and our characters are evolving in a fun and interesting way and getting more powerful, if we have another session like our last one, I might have to take the Ghost to Twix and put it on the shelf for a little bit of a break before we try again. Now the only other game that hit my table this past week, mainly due to the Ghost Twix taking up all night, was Ven. This is a new party game from the op, who I have to thank for sending us a review copy. 
This is a team-based party game where each team has a set of three circles in front of them forming a Venn diagram. Each round, a clue giver is going to play cards into this diagram trying to get their team to guess three words. Now, the bizarre cards are what really make this game work. While they're not as surreal as, say, cards in Dixit or Mysterium, they're plenty odd and wonky and weird. Mostly featuring uh, what basically looks like a bunch of different elements of clip art and stock photos all kind of mixed together and copy-pasted to make images. Now, so far we've only played in teams, and everyone we have played with has actually really enjoyed it quite a bit. This one was surprisingly good, better than I expected it to be. Now, you can also play cooperatively, which is something I'm hoping to try out uh, later today. Now, for more information on Venn, including a how-to-play walkthrough and detailed review, including the cooperative mode, uh, tune into our live podcast recording tonight on Twitch. Well, that's it for what I've been playing over the last week. A very long campaign game and a quick party game that everyone's been loving. Quite the contrast between the two, I must say. Learn more about these games and more through the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, which, again, we record live on Wednesday nights, twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop, with episodes dropping on your podcatcher of choice the following Tuesdays. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzano. Good day, and game on. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons. And you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dyson Dragons, and on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's what you've been playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing, or actually better yet, finishing recently? The Lord of the Rings Spreading War. Yeah, so we finally were able to complete our campaign for Journeys in Middle-Earth. This is the last big box expansion for the game. This particular expansion was designed by Philip D. Henry and Grace Holdinghouse. And I gotta say, this one did not disappoint with the conclusion. No, I mean, we finished all of the Lord of the Rings Journeys to Middle-Earth uh, campaigns. This one took us a little longer um, than we hoped, I would say. Yes, I think we thought this would be finished probably about three to four months ago, and we probably would have been playing Descent, and that would be wrapping up. But we have a cute little monster in our house. He's not a monster. <laughs> cute little man. Okay, he's a monster in terms of eating up our time as much as he would like. And sitting down to play long games is something that we can't really do. Also, we have this lovely channel, and that's one of the reasons why you're listening to us, which keeps new stuff getting to the table. So I was going to say... I think the fact that we have to we play a new game or more every week uh, keeps bigger games like this off the table because it you know we we don't typically play the games just once we have to play them multiple times 15 times 14 times 20 times stuff like that so it just got away from us but we finished it in time for the next expansion now one thing I will say, and I'm just throwing it out there if you're fans of the channel, if you would like to see us jump right in on Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-Earth, the new expansion, definitely like comment, message us, do something on one of our, our feeds, let us know that you want to see it, because right now, we've got other stuff that we want to play, so we're probably going to let that one sit until 2023. Yeah, there's a there's a quite the lineup of other things to play but anyways and lots of campaign games to talk about this i mean uh what can i say this took us almost it took us nine months 
to get uh, to get played, didn't it? No, this was uh, the review came out. It was about five or six months ago. So six months. It was about half a year that this sat on our table. Okay, but that being said, it's not for lack of love for the game because you know we really enjoy the game. We enjoy the system. Uh, I I'm very comfortable playing it. It's it is an easy game for me to play in the sense that you know it's familiar to me uh, and I really liked my characters this time um, I say that and I can't remember their names because I'm just horrible like that you're playing as Dwalin the lore keeper and Freya Hill the shield maiden of Rohan I was playing as Renarian the elf trickster and Bjorn the Bjorning guide and I have to say Bjorn was Definitely a bit of a disappointment. And we mentioned that already in our reviews, but the ability to change into the Great Bear is pretty cool, but it did not come in handy nearly as much as I thought it would. I much rather would have tried out the character of Calamon Took the Hobbit, who I believe is, I don't remember what they are, they're like a chef, herbalist type role, and they were able to heal. I think that would have been just a little bit more useful to us uh, overall. I didn't feel like Baron was the greatest character. Also, when we looked at Boromir, we didn't really like a lot of his cards and abilities. So, those, those two characters are a little bit of a letdown, but the adventure itself, I gotta say, this is probably my favorite campaign that we played. Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that, that happens a lot is, you know, the villains, the big bads, don't actually die. And you're like, oh, am I gonna actually? I, I'm about to get him. Is he, am I actually gonna get him? And in, in this case, there's a little bit of that, but not as bad as other times we've played it, I find. Well, I think they've taken a lot of player feedback into account. Whereas, like, beating the beating the spider, so a little bit of spoiler, you knock down the spider, spider gets back up. You knock down the spider, spider gets back up. There's stuff like that that would happen in some of the other campaigns. There's a narrative reason for stuff disappearing coming back when you're fighting the uh, the big bad at the end of this and the spirit of the you know Rowan and Gondor learning to work together also that little bit of a contentiousness that was there that you saw in the Lord of the Rings books as well as the the film trilogy is really carried over and then just p- playing in that section of Middle-earth it really felt like you were part of that story like your actions were part of the lead up to the Lord of the Rings. Maybe one of the reasons why, despite the fact that they're still allies like Gondor and Rowan were a little bit more contentious, even though you know they they worked together because we worked hard at it. You don't necessarily have to work hard at it. You could pick one side or the other if you wanted to. Don't know why, but that's entirely up to you. <laughs> and the whole campaign was just a lot of fun. And the trickster character was a lot of fun to play. And I think I got some of my favorite content in this expansion. Yeah, Dwalin was pretty uh, important to the campaign. Uh, as lore keeper, uh, we just, you know, racked up the lore. And I gotta say, we love our lore because lore gets us better gear, and having a lore keeper was awesome. A lot of the characters, in terms of being able to sprint and move, that was fixed a lot because of the mounts and a few other things. And one thing I have to say, though, is. I could only imagine playing with Dwalin as lore keeper or any lore keeper, just farming lore when you've got Barovor running around the map as the Pathfinder who can basically run across the whole map in almost a turn, just finding and interacting with everything. 
you just get, you know, Max Lord, like Mission 3. I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. So that being said, we liked it when we first reviewed it. We finally finished it. It did not disappoint. Very satisfied with the ending uh, of it. And we're eager for more. Even though I think we need a little bit of a break, we've got some other cool campaign games to play, and we really need to finish Descent Legends of the Dark. Very happy that Act 2 and the expansion is not coming out, because they'll be looking at Julie and be like, we got to get this done. <laughs> so on that note, we're going to remind everybody to... Keep playing games. G'day, this is Daniel Winter from Board Game Feast and the Omni Gamers Club podcast. Coming back after a bit of a hiatus from what you've been playing Wednesdays, but you have been having so much fun that I wanted to get back in on the action. Today I wanted to talk about one of my favourite games, The Castles of Mad King Ludwig. This originally came out in 2014, but I just received my shiny new deluxe version from the Kickstarter. So this sees you drafting tiles to place into your personal castle of various shapes and sizes and finding ways to, to combo adjacency bonuses into various points. There's a, a huge amount of variety in this game, both in the, the tiles that come out, some of the end game scoring goals that you're jostling with other players for, the bonus cards that also give you points. The trick here is that you take turns being the master builder who gets to manipulate the market and set the prices for all the tiles that are available for that turn, which can get really nasty with like trying to figure out what tiles other people want for their particular bonuses and locking that off or trying to find the sweet spot within how much they're willing to pay because crucially the other players all pay the master builder before they get to draft a tile themselves. So this can trigger some lovely interaction looking at everyone else's castles but it's also very easy to zero in on your own and just get so focused on what you're trying to achieve setting up the the perfect arrangement of rooms that you forget that you're trying to win the game it's uh you can you can form some great little emergent stories like why is the cheese room next to the bedroom so it's a great game that even when you're losing you're having a lot of fun this new deluxe edition has some lovely touches with new artwork on all of the tiles uh these new uh inserts to to place all of the tiles out on the on the board and a big, big fancy score track uh it's, it's a little bit of form over function it's not it's sort of sprawls uh quite a bit so it's hard to reach the various components that you might need but it is a very pretty form at that <laughs> it's a game that even if it takes quite a while to set up and tear down you're going to want to play it several times in a row just to see the huge breadth of variety there is to explore in this game. So I'm going to keep it short and sweet today. You can find me at the Omni Gamers Club podcast where we do deep dives into both board games and video games. We're currently working on our next episode of Russian Railroads, classic Euro game. So stay tuned for that. Or you can find me at Board Game Feast on Twitter. Thanks everyone. Hey everybody, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. 
And uh, it is already well past an hour, so I am going to wrap up this episode by saying thank you so much for listening. And as always, a huge thank you to the content creators who collaborate every week to put together this episode. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, before I head out, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh? <laughs>